You know, I think more and more nowadays we are becoming uh, concerned with safety and security. Safety and security is on a lot of people's minds. We take a lot of uh, efforts, we put a lot of effort into being safe and uh, secure. Uh, the uh, home security system market is a growth market, market seeing double-digit growth over the last decade. And most investment analysts, and this is not investment advice, unless you like to lose money, um, they see the home security market with double-digit growth going in the future. Everybody wants to make sure their home is safe. Seems like on the radio stations I sometimes listen to, a home security system is being advertised every other advertisement. We want security in our home. We also want security in our future. And we are all concerned about how we're going to pay for our retirement. And so we go and see our advisors, and they tell us to diversify, and then they tell us to undiversify and re-diversify our undiversification. <laughs> and all the retirement advertisements are based on fear and concern. What are you going to do? How are you going to afford to live when you retire? And we want safety and we want security, even in the unknown future. As it turns out, you can buy insurance to cover your safety and security. Uh, you can insure almost anything nowadays. You can insure everything you own. You can insure it in a number of different ways. In fact, large corporations buy what's called reinsurance. What is reinsurance? Reinsurance is a product that giant corporations buy to cover their insurance. In case their insurance has to pay and it costs a lot, they buy insurance to cover their insurance. I think we have a deep need for safety and security. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we look at the life of David in an interesting chapter in his life. And the title of the message today is Seek Shelter. And that's what our goal is this morning. I want you this morning to seek shelter. And we're going to look at the life of David and his experiences with King Saul and others and understand what it looked like to seek shelter. As we read in Psalm 34, in two different occasions in that psalm, it says, seek refuge, seek shelter. What does it mean to seek shelter? Look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 20. Saul uh, is king on the throne. David is king, having been anointed. But David's life is at risk because Saul has already tried to kill him twice. And now it's coming up on a big feast. It's the New Moon Festival, and everybody would gather around the king and have dinner every month when the New Moon would come. And David would be expected in court to eat dinner with King Saul, and he didn't want to eat dinner with King Saul. Why? It's a death sentence. Saul wants him dead. What would, you, would you eat food knowing it might be poisoned? Would you sit there knowing he had a spear next to him? Who knows? So David had fled from King Saul, and he was meeting up with his friend Jonathan. Jonathan, as you might know, is King Saul's son. But David and Jonathan are knit together in spirit, the closest of friends. David says this to Jonathan in verse 1. What have I done? What's my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's, that he's trying to kill me? What have I done? And Jonathan says, no, 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 listen, you're not going to die. Dad gets a little irritated sometimes, gets a little hot under the collar. But he would never seek to kill you without letting me know. And David says this. He takes an oath, in fact, in verse 3. 
Uh, your father knows very well I found favor in your eyes. And he said to himself, Jonathan should not know this or he will be grieved. And so David is convincing his friend Jonathan, listen, Jonathan, your dad wants to kill me, but he hasn't told you because he knows you and I are friends. And so Jonathan now has a problem. He's got a really good friend in David that I think he already knows will probably be king one day. And he's got a dad who is king. And he's realizing now he can no longer stand on the fence, can he? He can no longer decide to sort of keep David's friendship going and keep his relationship with his dad going. And now he needs to decide whose team am I on? Am I on Team David or Team, team Saul? Well, what would you decide in, in that situation? Of course, we're reading the story. We know what we would all decide, right? But King Saul is on the throne. He has an army. He has a people who is following him. If he decides to kill somebody, what is, what's, what's the punishment when King Saul decides to kill somebody? There is none. He's the king. And then there's David. He's essentially a, a, a felon on the loose, fleeing for his life with no resources, no army. He's got the respect of the people, certainly. Where would Jonathan seek shelter? Where should Jonathan seek shelter in the midst of a time that's very scary? Jonathan seeks shelter with the king. Look at Verse 4 of chapter 20. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. I'm going to seek shelter where there's actual shelter, and that is where God is working, where the Lord is in charge, and that's where King David is. Right in this moment, he has now said, I am with David. Whatever you want me to do, Whatever you want me to do, David, is, is what I will do. I am with you. David says this down in verse 12, in fact. I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, I will sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. Listen, David, I'm going to do it. I'm going to play a trick on my dad and figure out if he really wants to kill you. And listen, if he is favorably disposed toward you, I don't know who talks like that. As I read that, it must be in an English accent, you know, but... If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know, and listen, send you away in peace. If the king wants to kill you, David, I will make sure he doesn't. What does that mean for Jonathan? That's a death sentence. If you seek the salvation of the one the king wants dead, then you will be dead. And Jonathan is saying, so be it. I will seek shelter where there is truly shelter with the Lord and with his king, David. David, if it is discovered that Saul wants to kill you, I will send you away in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. David probably tried not to laugh when he said that. But listen to what... He says here, he makes a covenant with David now. But David, show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kind, kindness as long as I live that I may not be killed. And not only that, do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies. So David says, or I should say, Jonathan says, David, I'm with you. I'm taking shelter with you, but I want to make covenant with you. 
And I want that covenant to be, as, as long as God is with you and he cuts off all of your enemies, you are not to harm me or my family. See, Jonathan is more concerned about David than he is about his own dad. But in the midst of it, David is hiding in a field for his own safety. Why is he so worried about David? Because Jonathan understands how the Lord works. And he says, I want to be on the side of the Lord. I'm going to take shelter with the Lord's king, and I'm going to affirm a covenant between me and David. In fact, Jonathan is so concerned about this covenant that his family be kept safe that it's repeated two more times in chapter 20. We're not going to read them again. But two more times, Jonathan says, no, no, but seriously, David, right? You're not going to kill my family? You're not going to kill my family? David, this is a covenant with us. So what Jonathan is doing here is seeking the shelter of the king by having a covenant with the king. He understands who is in power by the strength of the Lord and is seeking to make a covenant with the one who is in power. And what does David do? David says, absolutely. Absolutely. Your covenant is my covenant. I will keep your covenant. Jonathan said to David, tomorrow's the New Moon Festival. So here's what Jonathan devised. They came up with a fun little plan. The New Moon Festival is usually a two- or three-day feast. Excellent. We should do that. What do we say? You know, every month we have a three-day feast. I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, he said, listen, what, 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 why don't you stay here, David, and, and my dad is going to miss you. Because he's going to see that your seat at the table is empty. And, and King Saul will say, now where's David? What's up with David? And what I'll do, David, is I'll, I'll tell your dad, I'll tell King Saul, I should say, that your, your brother imposed upon you, and they asked you to come celebrate the New Moon Festival with your family in Bethlehem, which would be a, a terrible insult to the king. Rather than coming to the king's court for the New Moon Festival, you're going to go to the backwater redneck podunk town of Bethlehem to have ramen with your family? I mean, that's what it would be like for King Saul. It would have been an insult. So this is exactly what happened. The New Moon Festival came, and David was missed the first day, and King Saul said, so where's, uh, where's David? He wondered to himself, the Bible says, and, and he says, oh, I know what it is. Something must have happened. Maybe he happened upon a dead body, or he had a conversation with a leper or something else, and he's become ceremonially unclean, and so therefore he can't come to the feast. No big deal. I'm glad to know he has his scruples. But then the next day, he also wasn't there. And on the second day, it's not a religious portion of the feast. It's just the feast, and you don't have to be ceremonially clean to be there. And David was still absent, and so Saul asked Jonathan, Hey, so where's David? And Jonathan related the made-up story. Oh, his oldest brother asked him to come have a feast in Bethlehem. He's not here. And Saul got a little bit upset. He insulted Jonathan by insulting his mother. Uh, Jonathan, you son of an adulterous woman. You can be glad that the editors of our modern translation have toned down the language for our sensitive ears. There is no other way to... That, that's just a... That the Hebrew word is never spoken. You just would never say it. It's just been toned down so we can give our Bibles to our children and not worry. He insults Jonathan in the most offensive terms imaginable and says, I knew you were in league with David. I knew it. And I know you're trying to protect him. And I know you want him to be king. And Saul picks up his spear and chucks it at his own son. Jonathan storms out angry. 
and he knows exactly what's happening. David was right. Saul wants him dead. So Jonathan ventures out to the field where David was hiding, and they had coordinated a signal where he would shoot arrows into the field and send his servant to get them to indicate the results of the test. And David was assured by Jonathan, Saul does want to kill you. The king is against you, David. And then David, Saul, Jonathan, at the end of chapter 20, what does he do? David, don't forget our covenant. So listen, this is what's hilarious. He had just had the king throw a spear at him. And he's more concerned about David. He's more concerned about the Lord's king because he knows where his true shelter lies. In having this covenant with David, we have to understand that Jonathan has abandoned his claim on the throne. King Saul is the king, so who's next in line? Jonathan. When Jonathan bound his covenant with David, he basically said, I don't want the throne. I don't want the throne. I do not want to sit on that throne. And he wasn't necessarily doing it out of the generosity of his heart. The fact is, is uh, Jonathan understood that God's will is unstoppable, and he knew that God was going to put David on the throne. So what was the point of trying to get on it? He would just get steamrolled by the Almighty God whose purposes are unstoppable. So Jonathan, in his covenant with David, seeks shelter not in his claim on the throne, but on this king who at this point in his life is hiding in a field behind a rock. David, in building this covenant with Saul, has done something absolutely incredible, and actually we don't see it anywhere else in Scripture. David has guaranteed the survival of his enemies who are all of Jonathan's families. There are all those who would make claim on the throne when David was coming to make claim on the throne. And now David has decided that it's okay to allow all of his enemies to survive in the event that God's purposes are done and the throne is his. And David honors this promise, by the way. In fact, some of Jonathan's children eat at David's table for the rest of their lives. So David now says, I will actually make my rule more tenuous than it needs to be by maintaining the life of Jonathan and his children. Because David, like Jonathan, trusts God's unstoppable will. He says, if God wants me on his throne, it doesn't matter how many of Saul's family is alive. It doesn't matter because God will endure and keep me as his purposes see fit. Let me just play devil's advocate for a minute. Boy, I don't know if we can say that in church, but I just did. What, what should Jonathan have have done if he had any brains at all. He should have turned David in. I mean, then he would have uh, garnered favor with his father. He would have been seen as a national patriot and hero, and many would have disliked him because David was also well-loved. But he, was, would have, he would have been one who, is, who puts country before personal ideology. And if, if Jonathan wants the throne, David needs to be turned in. He should have turned David in. He should have become king. He should have made sure he had his ducks in a row and then figured out how to serve God later once everything was lined out for him. But instead, David and he make a covenant together and two people who should have been sworn enemies. In that field, they should not have been building covenant. They should have had a knife fight. They're enemies. They both have a claim to the throne. 
But instead, God used both of their trust in God's unstoppable will, and there were two enemies united by the unstoppable purposes of God because they both understood if we get in the way of God's will here, we're both going to get steamrolled. So let's both figure out what God is up to and get on board with it, and they did that together despite the fact they, not, they shouldn't have. They should have been sworn enemies. Jonathan sought favor with the king, and that's how he was seeking his shelter, was God's purposes with God's king. He didn't seek to make sure he had his own life squared away. I should say it this way. Sometimes we, we do think that way in terms of our relationship with God. We think, you know what, I really want to serve the Lord. I really want to do his things. I want to make sure his things are done in uh, this world and in my life. But you know what, I've got a number of things that got, I need to get dialed in. Once I get these things dialed in, everything's sort of squared away, well then, you know what, I'm going to be freed up to serve the Lord. I'm going to freed up to, to get her done for Jesus because I've got my life squared away. And another guy had that same thought in uh, maybe a little different terms. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12. He told him this parable. The ground of a certain man yielded a, a huge harvest, and he thought to himself, you know, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. He said, yeah, got a great idea. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Actually, a fantastic idea. He had an in inventory problem solved. Tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. And then I'm going to store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of years of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Or as we say in Christianese, take life easy and use my leisure for Jesus' glory. Got everything squared away, so now I can do my stuff for God. And what did God say to him in verse 20 of Luke 12? You fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared? We don't seek shelter by getting everything squared away so that we can someday seek God. We seek shelter by seeking God's unstoppable purposes today. Because we don't know if we have tomorrow. We don't know if you have this afternoon. And we seek shelter in all these crazy ways. And, and Jesus has been telling us for 2,000 years, you're seeking shelter in the wrong places. Seek shelter in the unstoppable purposes of God. Make covenant with the king. Covenant with Jesus is the only way to ensure tomorrow has a happy ending. If tonight should be my last night, tomorrow will be good because I have a covenant with the king. And that's exactly what Jonathan did. He says, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but if I have a covenant with the David, the king that God has appointed, tomorrow's fine. And sure enough, Jonathan died on a battlefield not too many years from that day, but he had peace with the king. Seek shelter with the king, as we see in Jonathan. Secondly, seek shelter with the Lord. Let's take a look at 1 Samuel 21. Jonathan did what he promised. He sent David off safely, and David, though, because he was in a hurry, had failed to pack. So he didn't have any food, and he didn't have any weapons, so he went to Nob. It was a place just to the northeast of Jerusalem. He went to the place where the tabernacle was, and there was a priest there named Ahimelech. The Ark of the Covenant probably wasn't there, but it was a place of worship. And so Jesus, or I should, I should say David, went to this uh, priest, 
to get provisions. The priest was concerned that David was traveling on his own and that David was even there. Uh, and David said, listen, the king has sent me on a mission. He doesn't want anybody else to know about the mission. But I don't have any food for my guys. Can I have your bread? And the priest says, well, I don't have any normal, I don't have any like normal bread, wonder bread or Dave's killer bread, whatever you're into. He says, but I do have the consecrated bread. As it turns out, we just got some, some fresh, hot, consecrated bread, and that's for the Lord. So all the other stuff that's not hot and awesome anymore, that's yours. God gets the hot and wonderfully smelly bread. What does that mean if the bread had just been changed and there was hot bread waiting for the Lord? It was the Sabbath day. The priest only wanted to be ensured that the men that David traveling with were following normal protocols of military engagement, and they had set themselves aside to the work of the Lord by refraining from relations with their wives. And David said, absolutely, that's how we roll. So the priest gave him the bread. And then David said, you know, I also left my sword at the castle. <laughs> Dummy. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's terrible. Um, and, uh, and the priest said, well, you know, I've got a spear and a sword here. Remember, you left them here. I don't know if you remember them. A guy named Goliath carried them. Would you like that sword? It's the only sword we have. And what was David's response? You can find it on your own. There's no sword like it. I'll take it. It's a fantastic sword. David says, I'm on the king's mission. No one is to know about it. And David here is not talking about Saul. He's talking about the Lord. I'm on the Lord's mission. No one is to know about it. Make provision for my men. I'm on God's mission, and my men are set apart for God's mission. And my men set apart for God's mission can eat God's bread. My men set apart for God's mission can eat God's bread on God's Sabbath. And he had no qualms because he understood the purposes of God. He said, if I'm going to go and do the Lord's work, I need the Lord's sword, because he had dedicated the, Lord, the sword of Goliath to the Lord. That's why it was there. I need God's sword, and I need God's bread, and I need to get my men out of here. And that's precisely what he does. He gets his weapon, he gets his provisions, and he heads out, properly provisioned and properly armed to do God's work. It's not surprising that Jesus made reference to this occasion over in Matthew chapter 12. It's a passage you're familiar with, but it says this. I'm going to read it just because it's helpful. At that time, Jesus was going through the grain fields on dun, 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 the Sabbath day. His disciples were hungry and began to pick up the, the heads of grain and eat them. The Lord, on the king's mission making provision for the king's men on the Sabbath. Sound familiar? The Pharisees saw this and they said, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. When you read anything the Pharisees are saying, you say it with a sneer on your face. He said this, haven't you read what David did when his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which wasn't lawful for them to do but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here, Jesus says. If you'd known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
King David made provision for his men on the Sabbath. King David armed his men on the Sabbath, and they were devoted to the purposes of God because God had called them to something critically important, and it wasn't consistent with what Saul was doing. David says, we're with the Lord. We don't even need to go on mission with bread in our pockets. God's going to provide it. We don't even go out and need to do his work with a sword strapped to our side. We'll We'll just trust the Lord is going to take care of it. David here was seeking shelter, but instead of seeking shelter where you might have the blacksmith and the granary, he instead goes to the Lord and gets everything he does need. And he doesn't get mere bread, he gets consecrated bread, and he just doesn't get a mere sword, he gets Goliath's sword. David seeks shelter with the Lord and he receives everything he could need. His men receive everything they could need. I imagine leaving from there, David was flying high. The Lord is making provision. He certainly is flattening out the road before us. There certainly will be no hiccups in God's plan here. And then he makes his way to Gath. He's going to hide there from Saul. And somebody in Gath, you'll, pay, you'll, you'll notice it there in a verse, uh, or I should, should say in chapter 21, somebody in Gath recognizes David and says, Hey, isn't this the guy that they made up a song about? Isn't this the guy that there was a song that said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands? Hey, hey, king of Gath, isn't this guy a hero of Israel? And David realized that he was in a huge amount of danger. All his friends and all of his family now were, were in danger because he had been recognized in Gath. And what does he do? What does he do to hide his identity or really to hide his purposes? Verse 13, 1 Samuel 21. So David pretended to be insane in their presence. You would ask yourself, what does it look like and what does it mean to pretend to be insane? Well, it describes it for us. While he was in their hands, he acted like a madman. He made marks on the doors of the gate, either with his hands and fingernails or with a stick or something, and he let saliva run down his beard. H.S., the king of Gath, says something, I think it's a, an interesting quote. Look at this man, he's insane, why bring him to me? In verse 15, am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Are we low on madmen? <laughs> I've said this before, but it's appropriate. Now, this again is one of those verses you do not see cross-stitched on a pillow. David, his ruse worked. But what is going through David's mind in that moment when he's standing at the city gate, the killer of tens of thousands, the slayer of Goliath, uh, in God's purposes, in God's will, resting in him and relying on him, and he's thinking, what is happening, God? Really, I, I have to act like I'm out of my mind to save my skin here, Lord? Where are you? This is not what I had planned for. David's shelter was with the Lord, and he was completely and totally humiliated. He's doing God's things. He's doing them in God's way. He's doing them with God's resources. God, really? Certainly you've prayed that prayer before. 
David trusted God to provide for his resources, which God did in ample supply with the bread and with Goliath's sword. And David also trusted that God would one day lift him up to the throne because God had promised him that. And so David could freely humiliate himself because he knew God's lifting to the throne was unstoppable. Because he knew one day he would be king for God's glory and he would rule God's people for God's purposes, he could make a complete fool of himself because his lifting was was indisputable, was unstoppable. So why not go for it? Because I don't need to be awesome to be lifted up. I need God to be awesome to be lifted up. And David trusted in that, and in so doing, played the part of a madman and saved his life and the life of all of his men. Just one thing I wanted to ask you before we move on to the final section of this narrative. Sometimes we think about um, teachings we might hear here on television. Uh, we sometimes categorize what I hear sometimes on television uh, preaching as prosperity preaching which means this, if you do A, B, C, or D, God will give you blessing and his stuff. Generally, uh, the message is fairly simple. If you send me your money, God will give you more money. And I don't want to overstate my point, but they're charlatans going to hell. And I, maybe I'm understating. But this is sort of the prosperity gospel. You give God your stuff, you charge up. You, here's one I've heard, I've mentioned it before, but if you've heard it, ignore it, it's a heresy. If your, if your credit card is nearly full, uh, max it out with your donation, and then God will bless you and your credit card will somehow get paid off. It's crazy. We receive blessing by doing stuff for God, right? We do God's stuff. He pours out blessing on us. Now, we would love, though, to be able to just blame these charlatan preachers on the television for having this point of view, but the fact is, I mean, we sort of have this point of view. I mean, God, I'm, I'm doing your thing. I'm faithful. I don't sin nearly as much now as I used to. I don't, I mean, I used to do some really bad things. The stuff I do now is really minor. God, I attend church regularly. God, I, I, I read my Bible. I, I give money. I volunteer time. So God, certainly, since I'm doing your things in your ways, by your strength, everything's got to be tipped to through the roses, right? Let's read what God has to say about it in Romans 18. Romans 8, 18. Romans only has 16 chapters. So if you look for Romans 18, good luck. Romans 8, verse 18, this is what the Apostle Paul says. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy of comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Two things are guaranteed. Suffering, guaranteed. Not maybe, not if, not sort of, not possibly. Guaranteed. Suffering. But what's the second thing? But I am certain, Paul said, that our suffering we endure will be nothing compared to the glory we will experience. The glory that will be revealed, not to us, what does it say? In us. The life of Christ coming through us profoundly and wholly in that place. And this is King David's perspective. He says, I can humiliate myself like a madman because I know there will be a day I'm going to sit on that throne. God made a promise. His promises do not fail. The Apostle Paul is calling us into that same kind of relationship with the Lord that says, I can suffer like no one's business. Why? Because I will sit on that throne one day. 
a glory will be revealed in me, and so the suffering can be endured now. We can rest then in the Lord even in the midst of difficulty. Why? Because if I'm really religious, then God will somehow overcome my suffering and give me blessing? No. I can rest in the Lord now because like King David said, because I have the bread I need and Jesus is my bread. Is it any surprise whatsoever that Jesus in the New Testament is described as both the bread of life and the word of God? He's described as both things, the bread of life and the Word of God. And what is the Word of God described as several times in the New Testament? A sword. So we come to Jesus, just as David did, looking for bread and a sword, and we have both in ample supply. So the question is, am I going to seek to execute my religion in such a way that God will pour out my blessing on me, or his blessing on me, or will I seek the Lord as my shelter, as David did, and said, I'll take the bread and sword that God provides, Jesus himself. Seek shelter with the Lord, as we see David in David's like. Seek shelter with the king, as we see with Jonathan. All right, last little bit. First Samuel 22, beginning in verse 1. Seek Savior. Seek shelter with the Savior. I apologize. English isn't my first language. David escaped Gath because he acted like a madman. And he didn't upgrade his residence. The Bible says he escaped to the cave of Adulam. I don't know where it is. Probably likely somewhere around the Dead Sea. His father's household heard he was in this cave, and they went down with him there. Why would his household come with him to this cave? Because their life would be forfeit. As soon as Saul knew that David uh, had run, the first thing Saul would have done is gone to David's home and slaughtered his family. So his family left their home and met David up at the cave. Verse 2, then some more people started clamoring into Dave's cave. I just came out, Dave's cave, that's awesome. Verse 2, all those who were, listen, in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. I mean, could you imagine poor David? Say, Lord, I need some guys. Lord, I need some dudes. Heavy hitters, big swords, big forearms. I need, I need my hombres to show up right now. It's on. First guy shows up. What do you got? I got nothing, but I, I do owe a guy a lot of money. Okay, oh, uh, come on in. Got all kinds of temple bread. Hook up. <laughs> How about you? What are you? I'm just here because I'm mad. I'm discontented. Oh, that's a great one to join the team. What do you know when a discontented person joins your team? It's not going to be long. You're going to be discontented with you. Just a matter of time. Another person comes, I'm in distress. Why? I'm being pursued by Saul too. Okay, well, yeah, you're on the team. These are the people who came to him. The description of the people who came to him were the discontented and the distressed and the indebted. And David rejected none of them. 400 men, that doesn't include their, their families because we know later on, we know that all of their families were with them. 400 families joined him, discontented, distressed, and in debt. What kind of men did Saul gather to himself? If you remember in 1 Samuel 14, 52, it says this, All the days of Saul there was war with the Philistines. Whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. 
So David, again, is being contrasted with Saul. Saul is a mighty man, a brave man, a strong man. Come into my service. For David, it's the distressed, the indebted, the discontented brought into his service. David then gathers them all, and they go down to Moab, and has his family set up in Moab. So they're going to stay in Moab. And you say, well, well why Moab? Because his great-grandmother, a great-great-grandmother was uh, Moab was a Moabitess. Uh, Ruth is. Uh, she was a Moabite, and so they probably had some connections there. And then God orders David to leave Moab, the fortress of Moab, and go to Judah, where it would have been less safe. And God does, or David does so by revealing uh, the prophet Gad had re- revealed it to him. Four hundred men who had nothing to offer but distress and debt. But they trusted David in a cave. 400 men who were distressed and in debt trusted David in a cave more than Saul on a throne. Why didn't they turn him in? What about the guy in there who owes his a life's ransom? And if you were to turn David in, do you think his affairs would turn around? If he turned David into King Saul, don't you think his debt would be wiped out? Absolutely. But these guys saw more in King David because King David was doing the work of the Lord than they saw in Saul sitting on a throne in all of his pomp and all of him, his circumstance. The fact is they didn't merely trust David, they trusted the Lord. David was doing the Lord's work and they they wanted to be on board with it. And David took them all in. Why? Because he had all the money in the world he could provide for them? No, remember, uh, 10 verses earlier, he's scrounging for bread in the church pantry. It's because he knew if God brought him the distressed, God would make provision for the distressed. And if God brought him the indebted, God would make provision for the indebted. And if you brought them to him the discontented, God would make provision. So David said, okay, God, take care of them. These men took shelter with their Savior. It was, was, wasn't just David. It was the Lord working through David. Seek shelter in the king. Seek shelter with the Lord. Seek shelter with the Savior. A couple of thoughts to just point out before we close. We seek shelter in what we trust. We seek shelter in what we trust, and we flee what we doubt. So listen, I'm going to try and make a point here. I don't know if it will make any sense. We'll see what happens. We seek shelter in what we trust. We run away from what we doubt. So the question is, what is our shelter? What do we trust? What do we rely on? Here's a question to help answer that. Here, think about this question, will you? How do you know you're okay? How do you know you're okay? Or how do you know you will be okay next week? What is it in your head? No, I'm okay because X. No, I'm all right. Everything's going to be fine because this. Well, that's what you trust. That's your shelter. Everything else that you run away from to get to that shelter are those things that you doubt because we run away from what we doubt and we run to what we trust. So let me put it this way just to get our wheels turning. Doubt is actually trust. Did you know that? you, You probably think doubt is the opposite of trust, right? Doubt is actually trust. Doubt is simply trusting one thing over another. 
I trust God, but I'm okay because I have a job. I trust God, but I'm okay because I've got a really good family. I trust God, but I'm okay because I have some fun hobbies I enjoy on the weekend. I trust God because my political persuasion is being affirmed. I trust God because my health, I trust God, but I'm okay because my health is okay, or my reputation is good, or I have a lot of influence, or a lot of power. So we're not trusting God, we're running from God to these other things that are really our shelter. Doubt is actually a form of trust. We're just choosing to trust one thing over another thing, and our shelter is that which we trust. So sometimes I know we, we talk about struggling with doubt in our relationship with the Lord, and, and I affirm that. We all go through times of doubt or uh, are dealing with doubt on one aspect or another. But I would challenge us on this, this notion of doubt. Is sometimes we tend to, tend to think of doubt as sort of the fact that we have somehow become a more intellectually enlightened than those others who seem to just accept the Bible at face value. And somehow we, uh, we doubt God because it doesn't all add up. And I, I have a little more information than these Arubs who have sort of just bought in. But I want to make a couple of, of challenges about how we handle doubt. Doubting God makes a couple of assumptions, and I want to list those off. Three assumptions that doubt assumes. Number one, I know what it feels like to be in God's purpose. Doubt assumes, I know what it feels like to be in God's purpose. And it should not feel like the following things. It should not feel scary. I should not feel uninformed, insecure, nervous, small or little, or humiliated. None of those things should, would be, could possibly be associated with following God, right? And since I know what it feels like to be in God's purpose, when those things are true, therefore I'm going to doubt God. Because I know much more than God what it should feel like to follow the Lord. Doubting God makes the assumption that I know what it feels like to be in God's purpose. Secondly, doubting God makes the assumption that I have the ability to have all of the necessary information to know what is right and what is best. Doubting makes the assumption that I have the ability to have all of the necessary information to know what is best or what is right. I think David, when he was acting like a crazy person, probably came to the point in his life, I guess I don't know what's right or what's best. Because in God's purpose, for some reason, me acting crazy was right and best. But when we doubt God, we, we assume we have the ability to know what's right and what's best, and we question God and his purposes. Okay, last one. Doubting God makes the following assumption. I know what motivates God. I know what moves God. For example, I know that good deeds and faithfulness move God to do what I want, Right? And when he doesn't move, despite the fact that I know I've given him the reason to move, then I doubt his goodness and his purpose. And doubt is an assumption that somehow I have arrived at all of the motives that God could possibly have. God's purpose is not designed around our preferences. God knows everything that I know, plus he knows everything that I know that is wrong, and plus he knows everything else. So he has the, he's the only one who has the ability to know what is right and best. And finally, God's motives, frankly, are too numerous to know. What is going to move God is only knowable by him. 
Doubting tends to put a little bit too much reliance on our own intellect. Three more verses and then we're done. I know I'm going too long, and I wish I could tell you I was concerned about it. James 4. Taking shelter, fleeing from what is not shelter. James says it this way in verse 4 of James 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. God opposes the proud. He shows favor to the humble. Where is shelter? Is it in this world? Is it in the things of this world? James says, no, no, no. Shelter is found in God alone. And when we seek our shelter in the world, we have put ourselves at odds with God. In Acts chapter 2, a number of people wanted to know how to know Jesus, and they said, uh, what should we do to be saved? And, and among the many things that Peter said was this in verse 40 of Acts chapter 2, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Escape this generation. This generation at that time was the one with all of the money, with all of the power, with all of the acceptance. Everybody loved that generation. And Peter says, leave that generation and flee to the true shelter. A ragtag group of marginalized individuals that are going to huddle up in the temple for a while until persecution shows up, and then they're going to be spread out. He's saying, listen, escape the surety of this generation and seek the shelter of the people of God through Jesus Christ, despite the fact that this generation has all the power, money, and acceptance. Last one, and we're going to close with this. Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals was hanging on a cross. He happened to be keeping company with another criminal and Jesus. And he says this to Jesus, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly for what we're getting. This man has done nothing wrong. Then he turned to, and said this to Jesus. Absolutely the most incredible prayer I think that's ever been written. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, yeah, let's do it. See you in paradise. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. The Greek there says it's going to be off the chain. Thief on the cross makes a covenant with a dead man. He seeks shelter with a guy who is going to be dead in a matter of hours. Why would you do that? You have, only have to look at Jonathan. He did the same thing. Jonathan made a covenant with a dead man. And he said, I will seek shelter in the one who is the Lord's because that is the only shelter to be found. And this thief on the cross took the only shelter that could possibly be found. His friend took the shelter of mocking and trying to have the final dig in his final breath. This criminal says, I'll make a covenant with a dead man especially when that one's not going to stay dead. That's a good covenant. That's a seeking shelter in the right place and setting aside his, his knowledge and his doubt and his understanding of who God is and what he's up to. He says, I'm with you. And Jesus said, you're with me. Let's go. Seek shelter with the king. 
Seek shelter with the Lord who gives us his bread, Jesus, and his sword, Jesus. Seek shelter with the Savior who takes on the distressed and the indebted and the discontented. Set aside our doubt and our assumptions that we know what we're talking about and trust in the Lord and, dare I say, make a covenant with a dead man who came back to life. And we will experience righteousness and power in him until the day he returns.